0: Uh, is this where we say about our animals? Should I say that now?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah, but it's a, it's not really fair. It's not. It's I know not your answer Bridget cannot because... be a bearded
2: dragon because you already you already have an unusual pet. So yeah. think outside that box.
0: It's not that far out of the box here, but like a komodo dragon, you know, <laughs> they are gigantic creatures, and they are like poisonous. Uh, but it could be a good pal because they can keep you safe in uh, situations <laughs> where there's maybe danger. I-, I feel like you'd be able to, like, ride on one, too, you know?
2: Uh, well, okay, on that note, going to transition us to our main topic this <laughs> month. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. You may not recognize my voice today, but this is Dr. Grace Pratt, editor of the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. This is actually much better. Last week, I kind of sounded like a mouse, like all I could do was squeak. And so, uh, but I apologize, y'all just suffer through my laryngitis voice this morning. I'm joined by several of my co-hosts. We have a great show for you today. I want to let everyone introduce themselves, but I'm going to give you my icebreaker question first. So this has to start with the story. I have had some, uh, freeloading house guests in my house. I discovered about a month ago, uh, we had raccoons in my attic and it has been a whole thing as of today they are officially evicted humanely and moved to a new home although uh, my first grader Henry he was like mom I feel kind of bad for the raccoons where are they gonna live I was like I don't know buddy but not with us Um, so and then my uh, fellow was like well what if they were like a mom raccoon with her triplets and her older sibling living up there, just living like a parallel life to you. And I think that'd make a great children's book. We need to get uh, our friend and colleague Christine Borst on that. Uh, but it not does not need to be my lived reality. Uh, so the raccoons are gone. But my question for you, my icebreaker this morning, is. Assuming that any animal could be like domesticated and safely live among us, what kind of animal would you choose to be your companion slash pet? Something unexpected or unusual, that's my question for us. Uh, so think on that as you introduce yourself. So we are joined today first by uh, Bridget Beachy.
0: My name is Bridget and uh, I'm a clinical psychologist by trade out in the state of Washington at FQHC. Doing all kinds of BHC work, teaching faculty, training for medical providers as well as behavioral health providers. Uh, is this where we say about our animals?
2: Should I say that now?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah, but it's a, it's not really fair. It's not. It's I know not your answer Bridget cannot because... be a bearded
2: dragon because you already. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, because bearded dragons have already. You already have an unusual pet, so yeah. think outside that box.
0: Well. It's not that far out of the box here, but like a komodo dragon, you know, <laughs> they are gigantic creatures, and they are like poisonous. So you'd have to, fi- you know, I think you'd have to figure that situation out. Uh, but it could be a good pal because they can keep you safe in uh, situations <laughs> where there's maybe danger. They can protect you, and I-, I feel like you'd be able to like ride on one too you know i love it so i'm gonna go with a komodo dragon uh yeah our our audience members can google that
2: (laughs) i love it uh we also have deepu george here with us this morning
3: hey good morning this is deepu george from the rio grande valley you know, I did not grow up with pets, right? That was not a concept. And uh, we just got recently um, a little mini schnauzer and my partner already had a Yorkie. And so I'm just getting used to just normal pets. <laughs> so this question <laughs> uh, kind of like threw me off. Um, I, I would think uh, when I was a kid, I used to read all these comic books in my language called Malayalam and um there would all be these mythical characters who would ride around in birds. Like these are huge birds, almost like little dragons. So I would think about like a bird dragon that I can use for transportation. If I can get that very domesticated and on command, that would be great.
2: I love that. That sounds super uh, convenient too, to have a whole travel companion there.
1: That's right.
2: <laughs> and then we have naftali surana
1: Hey, everybody. My name is Neftali Serrano or Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Boy, this question is not the best question for someone like me. Usually people start to boo me internally when they hear that I'm not an animal lover, start judging me, telling me that I'm a bad person, and all of that kind of thing. However, I have good reasons for not being an animal lover. I grew up in New York City. I got chased by dogs all the time where I had to run up onto the roofs of cars to avoid being chased by them uh, because all the dogs in New York are pretty much guard dogs. And so, you know, (laughs) you you don't have this concept of a friendly animal growing up it's just like animals are things that you run from (laughs) um and that's pretty much uh it you know so so I, i i don't have a great answer to it because also like the the typical like benign animals like a goldfish and things like that i do have a soft spot so i you know think like oh they're feeling like um they're gonna be like in a little bowl. I don't want them to be in a little bowl all cooped up, you know, or a bird in a cage. I don't want a bird in a cage, they need to fly, you know. So then there's that other part of me too. There's so, still
2: way too much in reality land here. I, yes, I know,
1: I know. It's hard. It's I don't have a fantasy life related to to animals in particular. Yeah. I, I will say that like I I do like the if we we're going into non-reality, it'd be great to like fly like dragons, like in, um, uh, avatar, you know, where you, where you have the, that, that kind of thing is really, really cool. And that relationship between the characters, like when you, when I see those kind of things, I'm like, Oh, that's really nice. You know, it's just really hard to bring it down to like, you know, a cat in that kind of a thing. You know, I literally, and, and this is, this is probably going into way too much detail, but it was a marital crisis for, my wife and I, when, when she said she, she wanted a dog. And then years later I got, you know, tricked into basically getting a dog for my kids and it's, it's still an ongoing thing, but yeah, I've learned to tolerate the current pet that lives in my home.
2: Well, I I definitely agree that sometimes there, some animals are better in imagination than reality. Uh, I always, I don't have any pets right now. I did growing up, but I always say I have too many living things to take care of already. I cannot take on anything else that like interrupts my sleep or needs me to clean up. It's poop. Cause I'm doing that. Uh, so no more. <laughs> I hit my limit. Uh, well dragons it has, but
3: I was going to say, Devtali, with uh, running away from animals as the natural instinct, I identify with that a lot. I was chased by seven dogs when I was in Bangalore, India. That like freaked me out for like years. So it's, it's not until like probably like Five years ago, or six years ago, and I was like, "All right, I can, I can see how dogs can be in the house and all." Of that.
2: Seven dogs at one time. Like oh pack. yeah. Oh wow. A
3: pack of dogs. Yeah. When I was walking home one day from, you know, it was like it was kind of in the evening. It was raining. It was dark also, and I was just walking around with my umbrella and my Walkman at that time, and, or Discman. And uh, I think dogs just got freaked, and they, they all like kind of like. <laughs> lined up like in front of me. And then I had, I had one of those long umbrellas and then I just started swinging and screaming on top of my lung. And there were like people standing on top of buildings and just looking down, not doing anything. Oh my gosh. Come on people. So we were all about community here. And then, and then I, I like swung the umbrella and I think it hit like some of their noses and then they ran away. Oh but I was goodness. like just frozen. My deskman like flew off, and yeah, it was a scary experience.
2: So. Here, I thought I was just asking a silly question. We're going to need to put a content warning on the beginning of this episode. Yeah,
0: this, this is really.
1: Yeah, I grew I grew up in the. Uh, this is we're turning this into a group therapy for uh, our traumatic experience. Yeah. I, I grew up in the you know the 80s in New York City, where which was uh, for those of you who were around at that time, it was a, uh, the time when pit bulls were being bred as attack uh, dogs in the city and we're actually had uh, like caused several deaths. And so we were terrified as kids of pit bulls. Um and yeah. That was fun, guys.
0: Uh <laughs> oh, well, okay, on that
2: note, gonna transition us to our main topic this month. <laughs> We are going to talk today about uh, what does it mean to be a lifelong learner? So we talk about this a lot with our trainees um, when we ourselves were trainees or a lot of us are still in teaching roles. um, And we've talked about that extensively on the podcast. But what does it mean to continue learning or to be a lifelong learner? We talk about that as a goal a lot. But I thought it might be nice to, since we're just off the heels of our conference, and unfortunately, since we weren't in person this time, we were not able to continue our um, tradition of having a live uh, episode recorded together at the conference. But I would love for her just to hear from you guys, what were some of the highlights, what were some of the reflections of that time last week?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, it was super great. To be a part of the conference and the content was really good and being able to navigate through the day. It actually was nice being on Pacific time because everything started really early. So got kind of the end of the afternoon off and all that was really great, but it was kind of heartbreaking. Uh, Several of my colleagues and I were talking and sending messages like, oh, I would, what I would do for us to just be able to go out to dinner and grab a drink right now and talk PCBH or talk integrated care. And it was like making me physically ill thinking about how much uh, I missed that. Like it hasn't even really been an option. And you kind of, I don't know about you all, but just kind of have adapted to the current circumstances. But when they were like sending me the individual messages, like right now we would be at happy hour and we'd be discussing uh, how much you can do evidence-based and, you know, like I was like, no, like this, like I was heartbroken. So it was beautiful and amazing. And just so much, but hard. I
2: think what we do is so niche uh, that I think for a lot of us, we don't have a lot of colleagues or not a big group of colleagues in person to talk it with who get it, you know, or our friends who aren't in this field definitely aren't you know, my grandmother still tells people I'm a medical physical therapist. And so people just don't fully understand what we do. And so being in that space with people who get it and who know, and I have to say, even on the virtual conference, seeing faces and, you know, that connection is there, but it doesn't compare to like, I'm known in this space and I'm connected with people who get it. So I feel you on that for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I had a moment of sadness right before the conference, you know, because leading up to it, um, we're doing so much work, detail stuff, we're just lost in the details. And then like right before, um, like around Monday, Tuesday, I just started getting a little sad because I, I remembered the routines like, oh, I would, you know, I'm usually there way ahead of time. So I'm there on Monday of that week. And, you know, we're teams getting together, getting excited. And then you start seeing people filtering in on Wednesday. And, you know, it's just all these routines that, that, that you know, like Bridget said, you, know, you don't think about until you're in it and then you're like, you miss it. Um, so I definitely had that. Once the conference got started, honestly, it was fantastic just to like, uh, to me, I get similar about how many talented people there are. Like, I'm like, boy, wow, there's some great ideas here. Wow. This, these great sessions and uh, you know, and, and that stimulation um, really feeds me and, and gives me the impetus to continue this work, you know, year after year. So, so once it got started, it was fantastic. And just so everybody knows, like we had our largest ever conference, which was very unexpected. I think we had like nine hundred twelve registrants at the conference. We had some fantastic plenary experiences. Uh, particularly centered around issues of uh, social justice and anti-racism, et cetera, and then a final plenary action that was really excellent uh, with on physician champions. That was, I think, very encouraging for folks to see how um, involved not just behavioral health folks are in this work, but but physicians and our physician colleagues. So once we got going, it was fantastic and it was great. And um, and I think you're absolutely right um, that uh, you know it is. You know, we need people to understand us, you know, and and what it feels like to do this work and what gets us so excited about it. And I think that's the main takeaway from the conference it's that sense of energy that you draw from it. Uh, And I still feel like I was able to get that. But yeah, I'm so looking forward to being back in person. Yeah, I think uh, the uh,
3: amount of recharge that I used to get uh, has been kind of withdrawn from my life for two years. Um, and I can feel it like this October time is a crazy time, but it's also where I get spiritually, intellectually, socially connected and fully plugged in. And then when I come back, you know, I have like a second wind for the rest of the year and for, to welcome the new year. Last year's has been tough, just missing that component, um, for sure. So, I mean, conference online virtual conference. It's great, right? At least I get to see everybody can engage in conversations on the side, but it's just not the same.
2: Anybody want to highlight something specific that was, uh, you know, (laughs) along this vein of being a lifelong learner, anything you learned or connected with specifically at the conference? I know, um, you know, especially in this group, we have a lot of people that do a lot of presenting, but hopefully you got a little chance to attend and uh, soak things in as well.
1: Boy, there are a bunch of things for me. I don't know about for the rest of you, but um, yeah, I mean there, there was there was a session I went to that kind of gave me a glimpse into the future. I like to usually go to a lot of the tech related sessions just because I'm interested in that emerging area. And so there was a session on a platform that allowed you to based on the patient's zip code and other identifiers, understand their context, like in a snapshot. So you could see like on their map where they were and what the employment rate where they live is and, um, what some health conditions in the area they live in are how far from the clinic they are even down to like, like the radon levels in their area as a, as a particular risk factor, um, where they live. And, and it just gave me this really cool glimpse into like, boy, yeah, wouldn't it be great to have all this context right at your fingertips for understanding a patient as they're kind of coming to see you. Just even something as simple as like and you know like knowing their address and how far they are from the clinic is huge because that that kind of informs it certainly does inform my work here in, in um, North Carolina, where I have to be thinking about how far the patient is from clinic when I think about follow-up plans because you know coming in in two weeks may be really difficult for someone who lives two hours away, right? And so you know it's, it's just stuff like that. so that that you know just seeing the glimpse of what could be potentially integrated into the future of EHRs um, was uh, really, really cool. And um, and I think the other the other thing that st- stood out to me was that, final plenary with the physician champions we had someone representative from the American Medical Association and then we had folks representing each stage of the development of a physician and we talked about how we need to retrain the workforce so that they're ready to engage integrated in team-based care and it was just fascinating to hear from a physician perspective you know what what's being done at the medical school level to begin to change so that you're training folks ready to work in teams and ready to understand how to work with uh, behavioral health conditions and up through sort of how across systems you're trying to change provider behavior and perspectives so that they're able to work again in integrated care teams across a system, right? Already in practice as you do system redesign. So it was, uh, it was just uh, great to see that work done because a lot of times most of us are doing it from the standpoint of behavioral health Out, it's great to know that there's folks working from the other side uh, towards us, and so to speak.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna dovetail on uh, what Neftali has said, and this wasn't technically part of the conference, but uh, well, maybe it is, it was a PCBH form ELO, the extended learning opportunity uh, that Jeff Ryder put on. He had two, he arranged two different talks, one with a pediatrician, and she might've had some other credentials in there. She's a physician who works in pediatrics and the thing had a bunch of credentials. And then another uh, person who was speaking on family medicine and the uh, person who was talking about pediatrics, uh, she went on to explain what the expectations are for pediatric primary care and what is supposed to be happening. And my brain was just like, uh, yeah, like that is such a tall task and it is so ridiculous if we cannot be alongside of our teammates to help them. And then just kind of some of the realities of of burnout for family physicians and expectations on family physicians. And then just the power of primary care that for, they did um, kind of overarching studies to look and see, all right, where did we put our money and what were the outcomes? And time and time and time again, it was showing that when you, whatever your biggest bang for your buck is putting monies into primary care and how little is actually going in there. And so it was just really good to have that eagle's eye view of like, what are we doing here? Uh, not that the patient who's sitting in front of us isn't extremely important, because because obviously that is, but to buy into the entire primary care system and being able to make that difference on the system level so you can reach more folks. So that really kind of blew my mind. And then I, I just absolutely love Tyler Simmons. I'm like following him on a, one of the plenary speakers. I'm following him on all the social media now. But uh, just he just talked about just infused uh, being a human, the humanity of it, just the raw humanity. And that's, as you guys probably know, with all the context and uh, how I feel about disorders and everything else, like that just really spoke to my heart. I think that we as clinicians, both behavioral and uh, medical providers, we hide behind our titles and we hide behind our degrees and all the little things that are after our name. And if you strip it, and I'm not saying that stuff isn't important to some degree, but uh, none of that means anything without that human to human connection. So it just really grounded me in that.
1: Yeah, and for those of you who don't know who Tyler Simmons is, can you give his handle out? Um, I forget what his handle is. Maybe you can I think look it up. it's the up.
0: Tyler Simmons.
1: The Tyler Simmons. Yeah, and yeah, he's got and, a website and everything.
0: Yeah, and it's um, Simmons, but with a D at the end. So that's like, right. S i m m o n d s.
1: Yeah, and he was he was basically a not like he's basically a, a, a speaker with lived experience. It's, it's called right, so it's not a professional coming to talk to us about. Um, just his lived experience growing up in a section of Toronto and uh, with uh, some mental health issues and um, you know, how he's turned his life into um, a way to kind of talk to people about um, living with uh, mental health issues. And just so Bridget said, it was just so grounding, so real and uplifting, honestly. Um, And, and very, I think what what drew you probably bridges is just very contextual, right? I mean, it's just like, hey, it's not about the illness. Actually, it's about the life, right? And the great life that he's formed. So that that was that was really fun.
2: A highlight for me was a panel on women in leadership. It was Megan Lax, Rola Amar, Amelia Muse, Glenda Matinda, Erica Taylor, and Irina Kolobova, and it was just really inspiring and powerful. Almost first of all, almost every It was well-attended and almost every participant that attended was a woman. And just to hear, to see women in leadership talking about their experience, talking about the changes that they're making and seeing um, the work that they're doing and realizing that I have arrived at the point of my career where these are my peers that are in leadership. It was just very... Um, encouraging and inspiring and was really a powerful session that was a highlight for me.
3: Well, one of the drawbacks of attending conference virtually is getting like slammed with other things. So there are lots of sessions that I need to go back and watch, but Throughout the conference, um, I attended a lot of the ELOs in terms of just like learning and, and piecing together new information. I, I love the ELOs, right? Like both the, I guess, what was it called? The Founders Bootcamp, um, which is, again, I think, I do enjoy going back to thinking about the basics of what we do because it just uh, infuses you in a different way, like just the, the different points, right? And I think uh, Bridget did a great, a facilitated session with Kirk Strassel on com- and complexity and that always makes us think and um, you know, frame things in a different way for me. So that was very, very helpful. And yes, you're right, Bridget, he was on fire for sure. So if you have you have a chance to go back and listen to do that. Stacy Obai did a whole afternoon on chronic disease uh, conditions and had to kind of uh, work with it from a BHC-PCBH perspective which is very helpful because I think she went into a lot of uh, certain details of things that I didn't really have on my radar for like chronic kidney disease and other things. So it was very helpful to tap into that. The sessions that I did attend, uh, one was, uh, I think I think both the sessions that I fully attended was actually Bridget and David's session. So one was on uh, just the mechanics of note writing and kind of getting that uh, figured out in your EMR made us teach a lot about what we need to do here. Uh, And then the other one was, which I think right before our plenary was, uh, or maybe it was sometime after that was with one of your resident physicians talking about, um, do we really do behavioral health as we say we do, right? So it was very um, real um, in-clinic-like conversations about what happens from the physician perception and and what actually happens. um, She did really good. Yeah, she was great. Just to increase our... When we say behavioral health, that broad definition of behavioral health, how do we really make that happen on a day-to-day basis? And it was great because like yesterday when I was in clinic, we're now getting things like pre-diabetes, right? Like pre-diabetes, BHC. Like it's its kind of, we're definitely aiming to where Bridget and David are, um, but we're definitely on the right track. Awesome.
2: Awesome. I- Thank you everybody for sharing those highlights and um, I hope it's not too much of a, oh, well, you really missed this great thing and sorry for our listeners if you weren't there, but also we really hope that you'll join us because there's so much great learning that happens at the conference, but I want to expand out and think more broadly about what does it look like to, to keep learning and to be a lifelong learner? So we're all in the mid points of our career. Now we're not fresh out of school. We're not brand new to this. Um, and we also are all doing a lot of teaching now, but I want to hear more about you as a learner. Um, how do you think about this? How do you make this a philosophy? Um, and even possibly more specifically, what are you learning right now? Oh man. Yeah. I think that's, what's really great about
0: working in a medical setting is that the context is already rich with lifelong learning. I think psychology needs to, there's all these things that we say that well, me- medical needs to do better. And they need to take a page out of our book. Well, we need to take a page out of their book with regards to, it's not just like you're trained and then you're licensed. And then, I mean, yeah, we do continuing education, but there's just not the emphasis that, uh, that I think there should be that you experience in medicine about that lifelong learning. And so every day I think is a challenge. Uh, and every day I feel like I learned something new and specifically with leadership. That's been, uh, highly on my mind. I'm trying to get better as a leader. I've been doing this for five years as the director. It'll actually be six years in February. Uh, so I'm just trying to step my game up, never ending process of stepping that up and just constantly making mistakes. So that's super fun. I'm trying to bounce back from them. And then how to train better. That's part of a learning, like how, how do I say what needs to be said in a more efficient manner? How do I get myself and the entire team working more efficiently? How do we gather more information, understand the context better, but not expand the time and still be available? So to me, it's, 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 it's every day.
1: Yeah. I think that's what's, what I say is one of the really fun parts of working in primary care is that, yeah, you definitely get, Get to see things um, over and over again on a certain level but there's always some wrinkle, some nuance something that you can uh, learn from something you can draw from just in the last couple of weeks for example a paper came out actually the special segment will be on it a group out on the west coast somewhere i'm sorry sorry brian DeSantis for forgetting where you're from, but uh, about this screening tool. Actually, I've been looking at the screening tool for like probably like eight, 10 years and sort of kept it on the back burner and like, you know, just not quite sure how to integrate it into my flow um, in clinic. And, um, you know, this paper came out showing that it worked really well uh, across a, a pretty diverse set of clinics. I love how brief it is. It's four items. Um, I love how it's just hit putting a dash on a 10 centimeter line instead of like, you know, something really complicated. I'm talking about the outcome rating scale, if anybody's interested in that. But the whole point is that my stance as a learner is, oh, this, this is something I can try. I can try to pilot this in my flow and figure out like how well this might work as a functionally oriented tool that may fit philosophically really well with the contextual approach because it's all about, you know, how the person is doing in their life, in their social life, in their physical life, et cetera. And so that attitude is such a fun attitude to live with because you're constantly tinkering. You're constantly like, oh, let me try this out. Let's see what, see what this works. Let's pilot this out, you know? So paper comes out, I'm like, oh, that triggers me. I'm gonna do it. I I got a copy, I cleaned it up, I laminated it. I've been using it with a few patients, you know, using, you know, a uh, uh, dry erase marker on the laminated sheet. And so far so good. Right. So, you know, it's stuff like that, that really makes it fun. And and I take that opportunity whenever, and this is what I do with training. I say every opportunity is an opportunity to learn. So if you, if you get a patient consult and they're on some medication that you don't know, that's an opportunity to learn, like go learn it, like go figure out what, well, what, what, what's that for, you know, and what are the, what's the basic parameters of that medication as it relates to the work that I might do with them. And so you just go kind of look that up, you know, or if you're sitting next to your physician colleague, I'm often asking them questions. I'm like, I'm, I'm typing away and I realize there's something on a problem list. I don't know much about, and it's maybe pertinent to what I'm doing. So I turn over to my colleague and say, Hey, um, can you tell me what's, what's the typical treatment for this thing. And boom, you just learn so quickly in that, kind of environment, even better than I think than like formalized CE. So, uh, you know, that's what I encourage. And uh, I think that's what's fun about for me for primary care, what keeps me engaged.
3: So uh, my doctoral work is in family therapy and I was very, very fortunate to enter the world of integrated care towards the very end of it. And uh, during my internship and then onwards is really where I have like dove into primary care, PCBH, and all of these things, right? So I feel like I've been like on a high-octane curriculum that's been uh, given to me by folks like Patty and Kirk, and then, of course, CFHA, and then Bridget and David, and all these uh, folks that I've been working with. So I think that's always going to be that tinkering thing, right? Like, what do I do differently? What do I ask differently? How do I ask differently? Where my mind goes when you ask about lifelong learning, I think it's just this trying to find this balance between increasing like technical knowledge and at the same time figuring out how to maintain the sense of humanity and connection uh, that we have with people. And then not just people in terms of patients, but at the same time with learners, right? Like I'm always thinking, what activities can I put in in the lecture so that it can be more engaging and at the same time, where can I make uh, a plug for a deeper human connection and kind of being able to contextualize people in a way that their humanity is seen beyond their diagnosis and beyond their uh, things that they come in with. And I feel like that's like a fine task, right? Because we get really excited about technical stuff. And then at the same time, we begin to maybe not focus so much on the human aspect of things, which I think happens in medical education and probably all kinds of education, right? Um, so that's where my mind goes. And so a lot of my reading obviously stays on the technical stuff of things related to primary care behavioral health and, and family medicine in general. And then on the other side, I've been digging a lot into the, the humanities part as really understanding like history in the United States and as history needs to be kind of understood, uh, meaning like what are the voices that are missing from the text? What are the voices that have been excluded? Uh, so that's one thing I've been diving into a lot. The other thing that I am on this other side is just really thinking about progressive spirituality and kind of like liberation theology kind of stuff. So I've been doing my deep dive into that uh, to constantly, again, to articulate the technicalities of religion, but not sacrificing the humanity of what it's meant to be. So that's kind of where my headspace is at.
0: Deep, I just, I just love that. Um the decontextualization that has happened in medicine has probably rendered so many of our technical advancements. They can't, it it can't get where it needs to be because of that decontextualization. So it renders those advancements, um, not, I wouldn't say to a moot point, but not to where the level it could be.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things I remind, um, my medical students or residents and remind myself too, right. I said, you can have the best knowledge in the world you can have like the most up-to-date ways of dealing with something and unless you can somehow through verbal, nonverbal, just your presence communicate to the patients that you care, it doesn't matter right you're, you're, the rubber doesn't meet the road at all. And I think that humanity part is also those deep dives that you do to enhance that right like the capacity of being and tapping into that is, it should be a lifelong pursuit. Like your humanity doesn't stop at any point, right? Like yeah, that the sense of being continues to expand and uh, it needs to be a methodical practice.
1: I that like- reminds me actually of a session that I went to that was also impactful. It was one of the first sessions, which I, I barely remembered it now, but just that idea of contextualization and, and my thought went to, yeah, how difficult it is to include families in routine care. Um, just because of the way the system is set up. And um, there's a great session on how the state of California is actually going to be providing a pathway for payment for work with families in a primary care setting for their Medicaid recipients. So it's a little bit of a pilot in that area which was just fantastic to hear about, right, to hear that there's actually going to be financial incentive for the inclusion of that important contextual piece. Why? Because, I mean, how many times have I been, like, working with a patient with diabetes, and I am just have the patient in front of me, but I don't have everybody else in the family, and guess what? They're, they're all eating together. <laughs> they're all making decisions together, and it's really hard to make changes on your own diet-wise when everybody else is not, coordinated, or I've got the mom and the kid, but one of the two is not a patient of the clinic, but I'm working with both of them, uh, or one of the two is not even insured. I'm working with both of them on different pieces because their health collectively is what's going to make the difference. Not like me working with just the one identified patient. So it's, it's stuff like that, 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 uh, reminds me of that.
2: Yeah, if I can summarize some of the things that you guys have talked about, you know, we talked about the fact that there's content knowledge. There's technical knowledge, there's process knowledge, and then there's grounding that in the values of why we do what we do and the relevance of it and connecting that with our specific patients. And then we've also talked about different times that this knowledge comes up. So we know from learning theory, that case-based learning is one of the best ways we can remember when there is a patient's face that goes with the diagnosis that we're learning, that is so much more likely to sink in and stick with us. Um, and then we've talked about kind of learning from colleagues and learning from each other. So I'm wondering with the big world of knowledge out there. And if you're taking this approach that you always want to keep learning do any of you guys have a system or like a way, because we know in primary care, we see everything. We can't know everything. We can't learn everything, but we see everything, but it might be. You know, who, you know, for some of, especially for some of the, you know, rare, more rare or less typical things that we see in clinic, it might be six months or a year before we see that again. So that's the problem we see with the residents a lot. Like we can't just totally let the patients that are on the schedule dictate the learning that we're doing because we may not see something. So is there any kind of system or how do you guys go about deciding what you're going to learn or keeping track of what you need to learn?
0: Uh, is it okay if I go real quick, because I'm going to pop off because I've got to get to clinic here. Uh, one trick pony, context, contextual interview, transdiagnostic, a- a- acceptance commitment therapy has six core processes for every patient. Or, I mean, that's there's six core processes, and then focused acceptance commitment therapy came in and broke those six into three. So three main pillars of a skill set. How open is the patient to their experience? How aware are they of their internal and external experience? And how engaged are they in their life? Getting really good with parsimony, really good with pattern detection and really good with a transdiagnostic focus and getting sharp on that will prepare you for as at least for BHC. And I'd say as a medical provider for situations where you're going to run into something that uh, is maybe a little bit more esoteric Uh, because it's the same. It's the same thing. It's it's each disorder and diagnosis. And each thing is not that different. And there's not any human Uh, that it's not relevant to see how engaged they are in their life, how aware they are of their experience and how open they are to what's coming in and out. So I think that uh, just kind of uh, this nonstop obsession almost with how to become more efficient, how to have parsimony is, uh, is, is the big factor for me.
2: Yeah. And we apply what we are learning across so many different settings. And I think that's part of bringing our whole selves, as, uh, professionals, as clinicians, as learners to the work that we're doing, you know, you, learn something from one patient. And you said, you know, you're looking for patterns, you're looking for trans diagnosis. And so you take that into the encounter with someone who on paper looks totally different, or like deep, who was talking about all of the things that you're learning. I know some of that is for your personal life, but you're bringing that to your, that humanity of what you do into the work that you are doing. I didn't say it before. That's, but the big thing I'm leaning hard into learning more about right now is physiology of trauma and stress and resilience. And so I'm bringing that to my work with patients, my training with learners, my working with the physicians, my own self and, you know, building in pursuit of bringing my whole self to the work that I do. And so I hear you, Bridget, that it cuts across and we need to be making that's bringing our whole selves. The thing that was, you know, it, you learned in this exam room can apply to that totally different patient, but also the podcast that you were listening to with your kids about like a cool science thing. You can take that into your work or whatever it is. We bring our whole selves.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I think pragmatically speaking, there isn't a way for everyone to do it. So, you know, you really do have to find your own professional way to kind of figure out how to integrate this basically as part of, of your being as a professional. Um, I think for, for many of us at CFHA, actually the annual conference does is a season for us, right? And I think, Deepu, you talked about it earlier. You know, This is a time where we invest a little bit more in ourselves and we get re-energized and we get those ideas percolating and then, and then we, we try to see what we can do in that next year, right? And so that's part of our lifelong learning process. And I think the fact that it, uh, again, you don't have to come to a CFHA conference to make that happen necessarily. I'm not trying to sell the conference, but I'm just saying having that as part of the season of your life, that it's a communal thing, that it's not just you necessarily by yourself doing it is important, right? It's, I, th- I think that, that is uh, the true core under- underlying lesson that lifelong learning is not, is, is communal or at least a part of it has to be communal for it to be sort of sustaining and, 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 also for, for you to hear different voices, um, other than the voices that you have around you professionally. So, so that's certainly a part of it. Um, I think this year was the first year that I actually experimented, um, with online learning because we had to, um, there were no conferences to go to. So, um, and I had a great experience actually, again, not I'm, I'm terribly biased here, but um, we have our CFHA Learns platform, which you can find on integratedcarelearning.com. That's where we have all our conference materials from prior years and also just uh, all sorts of modules related to integrated care. And I did all my CE for the year for the license, for my two licenses uh, through that platform. And I really found it. Um, really, really stimulating and helpful to have like these series to go through and kind of, you know, just in these nuggets, these chunks that I was able to like, digest, because that's the other thing, lifelong learning has to be digestible. It's something you can kind of consume in a sort of easygoing fashion, you know, it's really hard to like force feed yourself learning, you know, if that makes sense. So you got to find a way to, to kind of make it part of, of something that, that's easily digestible. And the last thing I would say is um, back to what I had said before, that, you know, lifelong learning should be part and parcel of your everyday work. Like, I think it's just a stance. It's about how you go in with a sense of curiosity. Um, and again, that's a lot of the perspective we take in Uh, work with integrated care in general and PCBH specifically, where we're always curious. We're always kind of willing to learn from our patients, willing to learn from our teammates. And we have this open stance that helps us to be um, helpful because we're able to learn and be shaped. And so taking all those opportunities each day to learn just a little bit of nugget about something different, something new, or try something different in your flow, All of that, I think, is part of, of, uh, I think, uh, being a good, stimulated, lifelong learner.
2: I don't know if you realized it, but you put a bunch of Cs in there that I think would probably make a great presentation. It's curious, it's continuous, it's convenient, it's communal. All of these things are key features that, yeah, I think that's great.
3: Hey, we can uh, develop a tagline for our (laughs) our podcast with that, right? Um, I uh, I think also our lifelong learning is you know, we're rewarded and made like there are certain things in the community of integrated care that will always kind of keep you moving, right? It's like every conference you come to, every conversation that you have, there is something that's always going to mm-hmm. affirm and kind of pull you along. Um, that's definitely been true for my learning over the years. And that I just spent right before the podcast, I lectured to medical students uh, when they're on their family medicine clerkship. And my main point of a motivational interview to them is always, always remain curious, right? Because that curiosity is going to prevent you from just folding into the biases and the assumptions that may be so naturally brought up for you when you see a patient with a certain kind of diagnosis or a certain presentation. And then if you can't think about what the patient wants, what their strengths are, um, then you've given in, right? You've like folded into all of those things. So curiosity for the win.
2: I love it. Any last thoughts that you guys want to share about this uh, philosophy of lifelong learning?
1: It's fun. You know, I I think that's, it's fun. And you see the multi-dimensional approach that we, you know, we're taking from both the personal and the professional learning, the technical, the process, you know, it's, it's a layered, um, it's really in a sense, it's a life philosophy Mm -hmm. that if you do it well, it, it applies really well to your professional life as well. I honestly can't envision a different way of being as a professional at this point. So it's just like, it's just part of like, that's just the way you do stuff, you know Um, just the way it is. So um, yeah, I just want to encourage the listeners out there to have fun with it. it. It's, it's, it's a great way to live.
2: Well, this probably isn't true for everyone, but I'm thankful for uh, continuing education and learning constantly in my job. Because if not, I probably would be one of those people who was just in degree after degree after degree. Because I, I love it. I love getting new information. I love, but this way I don't have to take on any more student loans. Just focus on paying off the ones I've already got uh, and keep learning in the meantime. So I agree. I think it's so fun, and it's just really neat to get to take something and immediately apply it and put it into use and it's so relevant um yeah
1: the other thing i think it does is it puts you around really awesome people um and i think that that's something that's undervalued uh sometimes when you think about continuing education to me it's just a pathway to meeting people and um Really, like I said about the conference, I mean, the thing that I I always come away with is like, holy smokes, so much talent here, like young talents, folks at the end of their careers in between, and everybody's got something to say and work that they're working on that's producing data or producing perspectives and challenges. And it's incredibly challenging as an individual and stimulating to see so many awesome people and so when you do adopt this approach, you naturally will, gra- you know, you'll gravitate towards people who will teach you something different um, all the time. And you learn something from everybody. Yeah. People really talented. People are awesome to be around.
2: Yeah. It gives you so much hope for the future of our field. Right. It's yeah. in good hands.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say, I say, you know, as, as, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm sort of close to that elder statesman role, uh, in my career. I'm not, not quite ready to adopt that, but I'm sort of close to that. And I, and I see the, I see the, the bench of talent below and I'm like, Oh, wow. Yeah. it's fantastic. There's some, so many great, uh, professionals coming through the pipeline with great ideas, stretching, stretching ideas and thoughts that You know, I know I heard Kirk Strossel say this at one of his presentations as well. Kirk is the elder statesman, probably, uh, certainly for PCBH, along with uh, Patty Robinson, his wife. But uh, yeah, he he was himself has been amazed at things that he said we didn't even envision when we thought about integrating physical and behavioral health. And I think that's going to continue to be true. Awesome.
2: Well, I'm going to take us into our special segment now. Um, We speaking of lifelong learning and, you know, thinking about evaluating what we're doing and taking that data and sharing it with other people. We have a focus on a recent research article um, that has come out. So I'm going to go to that interview. Okay, thank you, everyone. This is our special segment. I'm joined by Dr. Barry Duncan. And Dr. Duncan, I was wondering if you could start just by introducing yourself.
4: Sure. First of all, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, just very excited to talk about stuff I'm really passionate about. So great to be here. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I've been interested in how to develop myself as a therapist as well as how to privilege the consumer, the client, the patient's point of view, and all services that they receive. And that served as the impetus for the co-development of some very simple, straightforward measures that we developed. And then I developed the clinical process of using those, which has kind of evolved into what's called in the psychotherapy literature, routine outcome monitoring. But in the um, medical literature, it's typically called measurement-based care. And I developed one of the two evidence-based practices measurement-based cares in the world, the other being the OQ45, and ours is called PCOMS, the Partners for Change Outcome Management System. So I'm the developer of the clinical process of that, and I'm also CEO of the web application of that evidence-based practice, which is called Better Outcomes Now. And I invite the, the listener to uh, check out the website. There's free resources about how to improve yourself on that website.
2: Awesome. We'll make sure to plug that link into the show notes to make it easy for everyone to access as well. Um, mm-hmm. So the reason why you're on the podcast this month is because you guys had some new, uh, you and your collaborators had some new research that was published in family systems and health. And so we wanted to have you come on and share some of that information with us about this work that you're doing and you know what you're finding lately. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: Sure, sure, and, and this is very exciting for at so many different levels you know, first of all. Dr. Brian DeSantis is somebody I went to graduate school with, and we have been friends ever since, and I don't know you know, if you know this, but Brian was involved in the very early integrated care sites in the Air Force, so he's been a part of integrated care his entire career, and so he always wanted to collaborate with me, and he's also been a PCOMS enthusiast and used it in his own work for many years. He always wanted to do an RCT in integrated care sites, And our progression is, I mean, we've demonstrated improved outcomes and reduced dropouts at individual and couple um, with addiction, with mental health clients. And so we have all these RCTs. This is our ninth RCT, but we really wanted to establish it in the demanding workflow environment of integrated care with embedded behavioral health providers, you know, in a primary care setting. And so that was our dream. And and Brian and I started talking about it in 2015, (laughs) It takes a long time to get this stuff together. The it does. And, and so, you know, we pulled off this delightful study in three different integrated care sites in Colorado um, and got um, just astounding results given the workflow demands of um, those that work in integrated care settings.
2: Yeah, I love that you were able to demonstrate it because, I mean, as you're talking about in just your description so far, there's two different language systems. And you know, we're talking about medicine versus talking about more, you know, traditional mental health settings and being able to show the applicability and the results across those different time settings, different trainings, different, um, patient populations, a lot of times, uh, really must be a big deal for considering the generalizability of your work.
4: Absolutely. And of course, you know, we never know. I mean, I'm confident given what we've shown so far that it would be effective but it's a very different context in the workflow demands. It's it's very fast-paced, it's very brief, um, therapy-oriented typically, and so there are some real differences. Um, And so I was a little bit worried about the workflow, I was a little bit worried about the length of time, because we generally know it takes about four sessions to realize a feedback effect. And just so that folks know what we're talking about here, it's two four-item scales, give feedback to both the patient and the provider about whether the client's benefiting from the service so that treatment can be altered um, if it's not and so integrating that into the workflow you mean you have your warm handoffs you have your your doctor saying i want you to see this person you have them popping positive on the phq9 um you have all these different routes into it so managing all that was you know what we were wondering about and of course you know, we found this great uh, applicability in that it doubled overall outcomes, forty percent more clinically significant change, thirty percent less dropouts, twenty two percent more attendance. So you know same. those are about the same effects we find in traditional behavioral health settings, we we they were able to transfer to integrated care settings.
2: That's amazing. And just such a important piece of that, you know, we talk a lot too in CFHA about collaboration, not just between disciplines, but collaboration with the patient and engaging them in their care and really, you know, empowering them to have more agency in giving that feedback and that communication to their providers. And it sounds like your tool really helps with that.
4: I'm glad you said that because actually that was the raison d'etre of PCOMS. That's how it started from my desire to do that in my practice. PCOMS is really different in that it came from clinical practice rather than research settings and academia and item analysis and all those things. It really came from a desire to privilege the the client's point of view, the patient's point of view, and it does help engage people. And that may be where the feedback effect comes from. Is that just engagement of the patient in the process because anything that, Increases engagement tends to improve effectiveness, and that's that's true in medical care, and you know, uh, and in uh, mental health care as well.
2: Yeah. So, were there any pearls that you guys found about workflow or about you know how to really make this work in a medical setting that you could share with our listeners?
4: Sure. Um, The the major thing that we had to do was, you know, the routes to enable a person to get into the system and to have that easily done um, within the workflow of a behavioral health provider. So um, we had clients, patients already in the system ready to go so that, you know, when it was a kind of free-flowing situation where the, the doc said, hey, I'd like for you to talk to this person, not just which was you know generally not a surprise but you know it's not a a scheduled thing like if someone pops positive the able health provider knows this is a person I'm going to stick my nose in and have a conversation with um, but when the, the doc says no, I think this person would benefit. Maybe they have a um, a chronic medical condition that would that could improve with behavioral health intervention, or maybe this the way that they're presenting themselves. Even though they didn't pop positive, the doc thinks it would be useful for um, a behavioral health provider to talk. So we had to figure those things out and and what would be the logistics of doing that. So way we, we got our way around that is that. We also gave the outcome rating scale, which is also a validated screener in primary care. Um, Dr. DeSantis spearheaded a study to do that. And what we would do is when someone popped positive on either measure, and actually the ORS is a bit more sensitive because it's not just symptom-related, then that would be the portal into the process. Still, the doc could, you know, say that um, they wanted to see someone else, uh, wanted the behavioral health provider, but, but that was the main portal. So that kind of streamlined the portal so there was less unexpected consults asked. So that helped a bit. And of course, the electronics, the digital system, you know, makes everything easy. The, the behavioral providers had iPads and they would just give that to the client and bang, they would take it. Measure takes 20 seconds to take. It immediately populates the graph so everybody knows whether or not the patient is benefiting or not. And so it expedites this kind of communication process with patients about their care. So that was the main thing. You just have to think through those those aspects with people um, to make sure that the workflow demands, you know, don't make it be put to the side, which happens with implementation for sure.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've, uh, it seems like a lot of times RCTs get so standardized that sometimes we're not thinking as much about implementation or what is this going to look like in a real world application. So I love that you guys began with that because we know that you can't do anything in integrated care without thinking about that implementation and sustainability. And I have a feeling a lot of our listeners ears perked up when you said 20 seconds, uh, because we know time is at an incredible premium, uh, in integrated care. And so that, uh, certainly is something that, you know, You can't get much shorter than that.
4: That's exactly right. And that's another thing that Dr. DeSantis brought to the table. I mean, he's worked in these sites his whole career. Um, He was supervising the practitioners that were in part of the study. And so he was very, very cognizant of the workflow demands. And when we were designing the RCT, he was always kind of bringing that up that this needs to replicate everyday practice as much as possible, For the not only for the generalizability and all that kind of stuff, but also just to help people implement it um, by having those things um, in, in mind. You know, one quick thing I didn't mention was that the individual practitioner benefit of doing PCOMs, of measuring outcomes, doing measurement-based care. And that is when you track your outcomes over time, you can, first of all, um, improve your effectiveness by identifying those patients who aren't benefiting, which gives you another opportunity to bring them on board. That in and of itself will boost your effectiveness. But then over time, you can use this as a career developmental path so that you can see how effective you are and then do things proactively to improve your effectiveness over time. And of course, if you gather data Um, And of course the electronic systems do that and tell you how effective you are and um, even can make recommendations in the areas you might need to work um, more on to improve.
2: Yeah. Well, that is so fantastic. We're uh, kind of coming to the end of our time. And I wonder if there's anything else that you want to share um, or, and also where can people follow up to get more information? And we will link the specific RCT published data that you guys had in the show notes as well as your website. Um, But anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners?
4: Well, you know, I invite you to give it a try. I mean, it, it's, there's nothing, it's, it's free to give it a try. Actually, you can download the measures from the website for free. Um, we used them paper and pencil a long time before they were electronics. Electronics add a nice, you know, nice part to it. But I did it for many years without the electronics. Paper and pencil forms, just download them and give it a try and see how your patients respond and see what you think of the whole thing.
2: I love that. Thank you so much. The proof is in the doing, right? Uh, Well, thank you so much for being here with us. And it was really nice to meet you and get to visit with you.
4: Nice to meet you as well. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners, uh, to everyone. And Deepu, do you have a closing reflection for us?
3: I do have a closing reflection for us. Um, It's actually really tied to what we were discussing today. Mike Rose is an American educator and a a philosopher on education, and he's written a lot. He died recently, and he was on a, um, they replayed a podcast with Krista Tippett more recently. He wrote the books like The Mind at Work, Valuing the Intelligence of the American Worker, and Why School, Reclaiming the Education for All of Us. And one of the things that really Struck me about him was when he wrote, I grew up a witness to the intelligence of the waitress in motion, the reflective welder, the strategy of the guy on the assembly line. This then is something I know, the thought it takes to do physical work. So, Krista Tippett asked him a little bit about that um, split of what is valued in society. So, I'm going to read something that he said uh, just to kind of close us off in um, light of lifelong learning and valuing various kinds of intelligence. He said, especially in this high tech era where we are so captivated by electronic media, by the continued breakthroughs and technologies of all kinds. And absolutely, those are worth celebrating and worth marveling at. But what unfortunately happens is that our marvel at these new technologies plays into this unfortunate trend in the West of looking down on those who work with their hands a tendency that goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle to consider the person who works with his or her hands, manual labor of any kind to be of lesser quality, to be soul shriveling, to be the Greeks even talked about it, making one unfit for civic participation. So this tendency has been around for a long time and it's undemocratic to my mind. And so I wanted to try and turn all that on its head and say, all right, Let's take these frameworks of intelligence and cognition in analyzing tasks that usually we reserve for white-collar folks, professional folks, biographies of scientists and entrepreneurs and whatnot. Let's see what happens when we take these lenses and turn them on folks who comprise the backbone of the economy and of what makes the world run, physical, manual, labor, service, work, and all of that. And what happened as I did that was just this revelation of what you were talking about, the knowledge base that you have to build to be good at anything from styling hair, to plumbing, to welding, to bricklaying, and deployment of that knowledge and solving problems with it and troubleshooting and making decisions on the fly. And it was just such a wonderful experience. What an excursion it was for me to spend this kind of time with these folks folks that I've grown up with but spend this time with them and using the lens to kind of highlight and underscore the richness of their work which just so often goes unnoticed and dismissed until something goes wrong with our plumbing and when we need them
2: thank you so much Deepu thank you Bridget Naftali thank you to all of our listeners and we'll talk to you again next month